Hello, and welcome back to Change Starts Here, the Research Conversations Edition. I'm Eve Miller, and I am joined by my friends and colleagues, Kim Yaris and Jennifer Chevalier. We're so glad that you're joining us today as we talk about all about this idea of adaptability. And as a reminder, in our last podcast, we debunked some myths about time management and discussed the importance of explicitly teaching foundational skills for successful time management. But we briefly touched on the idea that adaptability is a key aspect of time management since the demands on our time can be so unpredictable. But there are other implications associated with a person's ability to adapt. Love that segue because I was just doing some reading um, on this McKinsey and Company study where they surveyed 18,000 people from 15 different countries. And they, they found that those most proficient in adaptability were the ones that were most likely to be actively employed. So basically, it found that people with the ability to change and adjust to new situations or challenges experienced greater employment success. Well, you know, that McKinsey report that you read and the importance of adaptability it's it's not alone, right? Like there are many reports that also have indicated this idea of adaptability is so important. And as we think about equipping students for the future, which that future is ever changing, adaptability, it's crucial. The types of jobs and the way people work is rapidly evolving, as we know. And people commonly face the decision to adapt or get left behind, you know, to put it bluntly. Eve, that is actually really true. And um, McKinsey and Company discuss how to become future-proof through adaptability, and I love the thought of that. Um, but what really caught my attention in their article is the observation that in a time when innovation is arguably the most needed, people in leadership roles are kind of playing it safe and resorting to the tried-and-true practices and leading their organizations back into the status quo instead of pushing forward into innovation. Oh, that is so connected to that survey. Um, there's such a strong argument to be made for schools uh, to focus their, um, you know, all that academic focus to also look at soft skills because adaptability um, helps to shift that focus to future readiness. Yeah, yeah. When building on that, like these soft skills, I know it's a term that not many of us like who care about these things. Um, the soft skills. It is an afterthought. And, you know, even though we know that it's important, um, academics often take center stage. And it's interesting to think about the impact of deeply developing these skills in students to prepare them for the future. So, I mean, let's think about leaders currently. Um, what do they do to equip staff and students so that they can be highly adaptable? I'm like, just, I guess I'm just thinking about it. I'd love your thoughts on it. Like what are like educational leaders doing to help their staff and students be highly adaptable? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. The first thing that came to mind, and I'm saying this kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also kind of true, is that the field of education is known for like constantly changing. So maybe the current approach is just like trial by fire. Like let's constantly change the standards, the curriculum, the initiatives, to keep the educators on their toes. 
Kim, do you have a better idea? Yeah. I mean, what about one of the trends in teaching where educators now expect students to show multiple approaches to solving a problem that helps them to learn multiple pathways forward, allowing them to adapt um, if they do hit a barrier. So that's an idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well done, Kim. That's a much better example. Yeah, well done. <laughs> All right. Well, McKinsey recommends five steps that leaders can take to prepare their organizations and their people for change. So I'm going to list them off and then we'll go through them one by one. The five practices are practice well-being as a foundational skill, make purpose your North Star and define your non-negotiables, experience the world through an adaptability lens, build deeper and more diverse connections, and the fifth one is make it safe to learn. All right. Well, you shared this with this list with us, and I've been thinking about it, this list of five from that McKinsey report. And I offered to take the, the first one, which is practice well-being as a foundational skill to kind of just expand upon that, um, that idea. And of course, I uh, raised my hand because I think that this is such a critical thing that we should be talking about. Um, and... You know, the practicing well-being as a foundational skill, you know, I think about the research studies across the board, how they're highlighting the urgent need to support educator and student well-being. This wasn't a pandemic-specific thing, nor now that we're coming out of that, you know, you know, over a year removed from it, it's still very vital that we continue to talk about what's going on for our educators, for our students, and for our leaders. So first of all, um, the lack of educator well-being is creating an unprecedented teacher attrition is, you know, what many of the articles are saying, like, there's all these other factors, but that really underlies it. And attrition disrupts teacher and student um, relationships, teacher and teacher relationships, the ability to teach, you know, there's so many negative impacts to student motivation and also to academic achievement, of course. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that need to support educator well-being. Um, you know, now more than ever before, it seems to be sort of a an epidemic in education right now. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um, I mean, this gets a little heavy, you know, this topic. But ultimately, remember, we are talking about supporting well-being as a way to support their ability to be adaptable. So in addition to supporting well-being, the lack of student well-being is resulting uh, in unprecedented numbers of suicide and substance abuse in our students and a decline in student-teacher relationships and teacher-teacher relationships. Um, and, you know, there's impacts to student behavior, all of these different impacts where the foundation is that well-being piece. So we just keep getting reminded of how critical that is. That is critical, Eve, and you got me thinking that if leaders are not modeling wellness practices themselves, then it's hard to, for there to be that like tone of acceptance and encouragement of well-being for their staff. And so one of the most important things leaders can do is to model that wellness, those wellness practices for their staff. Oh my goodness. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that that requires them to take seriously their own mental well-being. I remember seeing some reports where it's like, we see the daily stress reported of 
educators and that's so high, but then we look at the building leaders, the district leaders, and that often is reported in some of these um, different publications as even higher than teachers, which is already so unbelievably high. And it just speaks to you know that ability to manage your stress and model that, that doing the things that you need to do to be healthy and whole, you know, whether that's the things that you hear a lot around exercise and um, what you know that you need to be doing and the mental well-being piece of it, are, you know, it's just the wellness checks. Um, so that really will foster a culture where you're okay to have bad days, you're okay to rely on others, and that modeling is shown to have huge impacts, uh, especially when, you know, we connect it to also the positive side of these things, like connecting with, with purpose. Um, at the school level and at the individual level, right? Ooh, so you just brought up that connecting with purpose, and that is such a powerful way to support well-being. Um, but coincidentally, um, and I should say, and coincidentally, it's a second way that we can uh, increase adaptability. So purpose and adaptability are connected. <laughs> Nice segue, Kim. So the second, the second step that McKinsey recommended is to make purpose your North Star and define negotiables. You want to tell us more about that, Kim? Yeah, I, yeah, I was kind of getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited this. But um, <clears throat> so what we know about purpose is that only 25% of American adults say that they have a clear sense of purpose. Um, and I believe this just from talking with friends and family um, in my small circle, I can see that purpose is not something that everybody is kind of like certain about. Um, and the thing that matters about a statistic like this is that having a sense of purpose is linked to improved brain function including things like memory and cognition. And these things contribute to and promote well-being. So we've got this web of interconnected things that ultimately affect adaptability. You know, you said the word brain, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> um, I love, I also love that connection you made between executive function and well-being, because I don't think we talk about that enough. Um, and so I think I brought up um, this idea of sense of purpose. And so I'm going to ask you, Kim, can you speak to like some of the ways that, you know, like that um, leaders can go about creating a sense of purpose uh, for themselves, for, for the staff, you know, supporting that, like what kind of comes to mind for you in your experiences? So one strategy that comes to mind is encouraging others to explore their interests. You know, like, what is it that lights you up inside? You know, just asking a question like that and then integrating those interests um, into both your professional and personal lives. I feel like that's a conversation I'm having with my sons all the time. Like, you know, focus on the things that you like to do working is you're going to work for a very long time. So find the things that light you up and get excited about them. Kim, this strategy resonates with me so much. I remember when the Common Core standards came out, the shift took place in education in my neck of the woods in Florida um, that I immediately knew was going to be a threat to education as a whole and to teacher well-being and student engagement. Um, 
just to like set the stage, I worked with a teacher who was extremely passionate about gardening. Like she decorated her entire classroom like an outdoor space and integrated the gardening theme throughout her content area instruction. She had students develop an outdoor garden right on the school campus um, and anchored the hands-on work with her literacy standards, her science standards. She wove math concepts into it, like two rows of five plants, you know, to set the stage for multiplication. Um, you get the idea. So it was just so incredible. You could imagine like every child was clamoring to get into her class. It was so great. She sounds like an amazing teacher. Yeah, wow. She was. Um, But then when the Common Core Standards came out, she was told she could no longer use thematic teaching like that because it was too much fluff. And I remember them saying that exactly. It's too much fluff. She was forced to stop filtering her instruction through the gardening theme and was given scripted curriculum for each content area. And so when that happened, like, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's like, the light went out in her. I could, you could visibly see it. Um, Her passion for gardening had brought so much joy to her educator role, but without it, she was never the same teacher. And when she lost her passion, she lost her purpose. And, you know, after a couple of years, she left the profession altogether. It was heartbreaking. Oh, oh, I, I can feel the tragedy of that story when you said was, she was, I was like, no, not was. And, and I, you know, I think about student outcomes that we want in schools. We want them engaged. We want them showing up. You know, so many districts are struggling with chronic absenteeism and, um, you know, all of these different student engagement, you know, these are some of those common things cited in reports and then think about her classroom, right? How excited were kids to show up? How engaged were they in learning? Like, and and so it feels like it gets in the way, right? Like some of these things that when we aren't able to connect it to purpose or when there's not a leader recognizing strengths in their staff and, you know, doing what they can to help, you know, encourage uh, their staff to be able to bring their strengths, bring that sense of purpose into their day-to-day and getting barriers out of the way. We can't even imagine, right, like the impact that has for teachers and their well-being and their ability to engage and have students attend. It's just, it's so powerful to me. I, I think it would be interesting to compare data on student outcomes for when she was teaching thematically and she had her garden in full bloom with the butterflies and when she was forced to stop, I, I bet it would be telling. Yeah, unfortunately, like that's the data that we'll never get to have. Um you know, but getting back to this idea about how passion can drive us through our days and kind of like increases our um, energy for being adaptable, right? I mean, it's that interconnectedness of that. And, you know, we draw energy from our purpose. Yeah. And, you know, just working alongside her, I drew energy and creativity and passion from her. Like she impacted all the staff, all the students. Um, and it was just, again, heartbreaking to see her shift from operating in her passion and thriving to having it all squashed. It was just a travesty. Okay, so this makes me think about um, staying on this example. Um, you know, when there is change, 
you know, the research on this, you know, what it says is, you know, that can really impact a teacher's sense of efficacy, right? That change can disconnect them from that sense of purpose. And so when there's change, which as was established earlier, it is constantly happening in education. It is critical to ensure educators feel like they have choice and voice. Why? Because that is a hit to their sense of efficacy. Change is difficult for everyone. So when a curriculum changes, the more we can find paths for them to have choices within that and ways to adapt (laughs) um, it to their strengths, to their purpose, that is such a key like practice that a leader who can't change everything, who can't determine some aspects of the curriculum, things like that, but that is something that can really help support the educators. Um, And so it could really help to fuel their purpose. But okay, I will shift to the third step of becoming adaptable. Um, It is to experience the world uh, through an adaptability lens. And I've talked a lot, so I don't know. What do you think about that, Kim? All right. So adaptability lens, it's kind of like um, our brains naturally predict what will happen based on past experience, causing people to default to certain behavior patterns. So what happens then is it creates this cycle where people default to their old behavior and thought patterns and then have a hard time uh, adapting to the change. So kind of like underlying these patterns are those beliefs and mindsets. And those beliefs and mindsets impact our perceptions of different situations and basically end up in us becoming less adaptable. Well, that's interesting to think about. So we default to our old patterns of behavior and thinking because they feel familiar and safe. Yeah, we just, it's like defaulting to the status quo. We have this fixed mindset about it. We see ourselves as an expert who can draw from past experiences. We face a new experience and boom. Um, So we become reactive. We fall into these patterns and we feel like we need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our organizations. Um, Ultimately, it's like, craving certainty, which can lead to scarcity and sometimes even like a victim mentality. I mean, that's, that's really powerful, Kim. And I mean, I think we can all think of leaders who, you know, I mean, despite their best efforts, um, who have operated from the status quo paradigm. Um, I'm, I'm sure we can all relate to it. Right. Um, And, and in hindsight, I can see how it held, um, the organizations that I worked for at the time, how it held them back or how it held back a group, right? Like that status quo really can be sticky in the past. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that happen too. Um, so when change is looming, what are we saying leaders could do differently to promote growth and adaptability? Yeah, well, I mean, just jumping in here, some of the approaches to promote adaptability because it is difficult and we know like brain scan, you know, the imaging it showed like, it's like connected to like some of these areas that register like pain, right? Like these feelings of discomfort and pain. And um, 
just getting more comfortable um, with that feeling. Um, and to do that, we can bring a more curious disposition, um, as simple as that might sound. Um, when we are feeling the discomfort of it, we often will have that status quo, like you talked about, and we can just kind of really lock in. And so curiosity, that idea of asking questions, exploring and discovering new pathways, um, that has been found to be really important for the people who are able to make it through change and those who stay in more of that um, status quo thinking. And so that out of the box thinking, um, it really helps everyone to see change as an opportunity to innovate instead of as a threat, like change can often feel. Well, you guys have shared some great ideas for how leaders can grow adaptability in their organizations. Um, the fourth step cited in the article is for leaders to deepen and broaden connections among their people. Stronger interpersonal relationships provide a network of support and collaboration in the face of change, making the people in the organization more adaptable. So what can leaders do then to um, facilitate this? I think they just need to create like space for interpersonal connection within the organization and even beyond. Like sometimes the ideas that leaders need when facing change come from those within the organization. So there have to be high trust relationships in place so that people can allow themselves to feel vulnerable, right? When change mm -hmm. makes everything uncertain, people have that sense of vulnerability. Um, so we must invest time in relationship building before a challenge arises. You can't do it when everyone's feeling threatened by a change. Um, and if you do that in advance, people feel more comfortable sharing ideas and trying new things. Uh, yeah. If relationships and trust are not strong, the people in the organization, they're going to fall back on the status quo of pushing into, in, instead of pushing into the innovative space, right? So um and I mean, that all ties into that feeling of safety, but also, I mean, which is generated by the trust that they feel in the leaders and in each other. And come to think of it, it also links to the first thing that we discussed, which is well-being. <laughs> if trust and relationships are strong, the well-being of the people in the organization, we, we know this, right? Like it's, it's naturally going to be higher. That's a huge factor in well-being especially in these educational settings. Yeah, so building relationships beyond the organization. Um, I think that brings a lot of powerful opportunities. For example, when leaders encourage teachers to collaborate, um, you know, even within the district, across the district, across the state, um, sometimes even globally, the team develops a larger set of ideas and approaches. And I think that sometimes the best ideas for adapting in the face of change can come from others outside of the organization, who those who've kind of been through something similar. That's a great point. So I think collectively we're making the case that these strategies are all interconnected. Um, leaders would be wise to prioritize team building and relationship building so the work can move efficiently and effectively. So as I think about strong relationships um, being so important to adaptability, um, it makes me think that about safety in learning and what leaders can do to make it safe. I feel like you kind of were touching on that, Eve, before. Um, so 
one of the things that I think about that can make it safe is the, our approach when we approach failure, right? So when we reframe, reframe failure as a learning experience, um, it just makes it better for everybody, right? Because everybody fails from time to time. So, um, you know, sharing our missteps, um, we learn, we all learn ways that we can improve when we have this like, hey, you know, what was, um, you know, my, my favorite mistake was this week was just having a culture that kind of embraces that um, kind of, Right, you know, tills the soil in a way to make um, people more accepting of change and therefore more adaptable. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I I just am thinking about um, the importance of safety to adaptability and um, just you know by way of the the parts of the brain that it opens up to us, and I think about. Um, at my daughter's school, um, they in the the principal in the morning announcements would always say, you know, mistakes are part of learning. Um, you know, so it was like it was broadcast throughout the elementary school um, every single day. And so sometimes she would even roll her eyes and, oh, I know, mom, mistakes are part of learning. But I think when you say that, but you don't back it up in the action when it's hard, right? That's, those are the moments where they really learn if they're safe. So in that staff meeting, when someone messed up in the times when you're talking about another staff member and can you believe what, how they messed up, you know, like whatever that represents at that moment or in front of the students, those are the moments where we learn how safe we are. It's not in these, oh, this big mistake happened. It's okay. Or just like as a platitude of it's okay. I feel like that's what's critical in developing that sense that I can grow and adapt and it's okay if I make mistakes because I see it. I see that the people who make them are safe and so I can be safe too. So, you know, this is certainly tied to academic outcomes and all of that, but for the sake of today, it's certainly tied to our ability to adapt and learn. So what I hear you saying, Eve, is it really stems from leaders modeling that, right? Because even leaders yeah. mess up. And so like setting the tone by owning a mistake, saying how you learn from it, how everyone can learn from it, sets the tone for everyone else to do the same. So I love that. All right. Well, we have shared some powerful practices that leaders can ad adopt to create a culture of adaptability where each person in the organization um, as a whole can thrive in the face of change. So I'm just gonna recap the five steps before we sign off here. They were practice well-being as a foundational skill, make purpose your North Star and define your non-negotiables, experience the world through an adaptability lens, build deeper and more diverse connections and make it safe to learn. All right, fascinating, fascinating stuff, ladies. Unfortunately though, we're out of time, so thanks so much to everybody who's joined us for today's episode. Um, we would love it if you um, are interested and want to know when these conversations drop, definitely like and subscribe um, and definitely stay tuned for our next conversation, which is going to be all about critical thinking. Mm -hmm.